Hey, welcome to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My name is John, and I am so glad you are joining me on this episode. Here on the podcast, we like to give what I call blue jeans theology. That is theology that's rooted in everyday life so that you can follow Jesus in everyday life. And if you are new, if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you find this helpful to your faith and to walking with God. We are currently in the midst of what's traditionally called Advent, and Advent is a waiting season. It's those weeks leading up to Christmas where we're waiting and watching, and so Advent celebrates this idea of waiting, and so what we're doing here on the podcast, which we started in our last episode, is just really looking at the big story of the Bible and what we learn about walking with God and waiting through that story. And so in the first episode in this series, our last episode, we we just reviewed really from Abraham all the way up to the fall of Jerusalem, which is about 1,500 years in the biblical story. We did that in 20 minutes or so. And so, man, we just hit the highlights on that. But we, we did it really looking at how God kept narrowing down the line of promise, making it more clear, more specific what he was going to do. And then all of a sudden, we we arrive at what is almost the very end of the, the Old Testament story, and Israel has now fallen to the Babylonians. Jerusalem is laid waste. The temple is destroyed, and the whole promise seems left unfulfilled. And we emphasized in that episode that this just tells us that, one, God is not in a hurry, 1,500 years, that Waiting is is in keeping with the sovereignty of God, and it's part of our walk with God, and even waiting in the midst of a giant, what now? What now, God? Like, I don't understand how you're going to pull this out of the hat. I don't understand what you're up to. I don't understand how you're going to fulfill the promise. God, this doesn't make any sense. What now, God? That what now is part of walking with God. Waiting, watching, and asking what now is part of walking with God. Well, in this episode, we are going to pick up at that point and still really on this theme of waiting in view of kind of the Christmas season, right? And this Advent season of waiting. And I'll just be honest, as a kid, man, waiting for Christmas was like one of the worst things ever. I don't know if you have any of those memories. I I do. It felt like it just took forever. Like Thanksgiving would come. That was awesome. That was great. And yet what I really wanted was Christmas. And the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas Christmas just moved torturously slow. It seemed like it would never get here, right? Like uh and and on Christmas Eve itself, we always waited for the cousins to come up and they would we would all meet at my grandma's house and we would have a big Christmas dinner at grandma's before we would go to the candlelight service at church. And it just seemed like it took forever for the cousins to get there. They lived an hour and a half away. And why aren't they here? And let's get this day going and Christmas Eve. And everything took so long. Right. Um, waiting, waiting. I remember when my kids were small. And they would have a good friend, Josh Harris, would, you know, oh, he's supposed to come over today. And and uh, they would literally be sitting on the couch, looking out the front window, watching and waiting, sometimes for an hour or two hours and getting frustrated and wondering what's taking so long and when is he going to get here? And finally he would arrive and they would be so excited. Uh, that idea of waiting, where, where are they? When are they going to get here? Well, that goes along with the biblical story as well, waiting for someone. Where are you? So we pick up here where we left off in our last episode. The Jews have been carried off to Babylon and into exile. Their nation has been laid waste and destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem and the temple are a heap of rubble. 
And where in the world is God in the midst of all of that? And so to pick up at that point and to, to set the tone, let me read you from the book of Lamentations. If you're not familiar with the book of Lamentations, um, it is a song of lament, a poem of lament, hence Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah, um, who sat there and, and, you know, here's the rubble heap of Jerusalem in the temple. And as Jerusalem smolders and burns, Jeremiah watching, and this is what he writes. He writes in Lamentations chapter 1, how deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And then jumping ahead into Lamentations 2, how the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. And those are the words of Jeremiah as he sits, watching Jerusalem burn as a rubble heap. But God had given Jeremiah also a word for the exiles, a, a timetable, and a promise. In his major prophecy, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah records this, the, this word of promise. It's actually part of a letter that Jeremiah is sharing with the exiles in Babylon. This is what uh, Jeremiah writes, and this is what the Lord says. Jeremiah 29 Verse 10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Remember, these are the words to the exiles in Babylon. So Jeremiah is bolstering their hope with these words. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you back from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And so here's Jeremiah weeping and, and mourning the fate of Jerusalem in Lamentations. But then again, here's Jeremiah sending word of hope and encouragement to the exiles in Babylon that that God is going to bring them back and that God has a plan to prosper them. And he even has a timetable. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my word to you. And so this is going to be about a 70-year uh, thing, Jeremiah is saying. Well, many years after Jeremiah wrote these words in both Lamentations and Jeremiah, many years later, Daniel the prophet, sitting in exile in Babylon, is studying the scriptures. 
And he comes across this very passage here from Jeremiah, and it struck him. And Daniel 9 tells tells us that he realized that God had promised only 70 years. So he sought the Lord with fasting and prayer, asking God to forgive the sins of Israel and to fulfill the promise that he had given through Jeremiah. And in Daniel chapter 9, in this fasting and prayer, reflecting on this promise from Jeremiah, uh, Daniel says this in his prayer, Daniel 9, 19, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So here's Daniel watching and waiting and wondering where God is in the midst of all that's going on and calling on God to act. And God even gave Daniel visions of the kingdoms that would follow Babylon. And so God gave Jeremiah this word of hope that there's going to be 70 years for Babylon. Well, God made it more clear for Daniel and gave him some visions uh, of what would follow after Babylon. And those visions are dark and somewhat mysterious. But God had told him there would be other kingdoms to come and that it was going to take longer than he thought for the promises to be fulfilled, right? Yes, the people would return home, but everything that God was going to do wouldn't be fulfilled Uh, in those initial 70 years, right? It was actually going to be 70 weeks of years. uh, And that's what happened. The Babylonians were routed by the Persians in 539. They gave the Jews the opportunity to return to their homeland. Some of the Jews did pack up and head back to Jerusalem. Some stayed behind. Those that returned resettled Judea. They resettled Jerusalem. Uh, And after Jerusalem uh, was resettled and rebuilt, then um, they worked on the temple, and it actually required a little bit of encouragement from the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to complete the task of rebuilding the temple. But finally, in 516 BC, uh, the the initial task of rebuilding the temple was complete, and even that was like a disappointment. Like they they they're back in their land. Uh, They at least got some of the city rebuilt. They're rebuilding their homes. They've got the temple now uh, rebuilt. And yet the older people who remember the glory of the first temple, look at this this lame rebuilt temple and and they weep, (laughs) right? Um, Ezra tells us that they weep because of this, right? Um, Says this, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And there was just mixed emotions, some shouting for joy. This is great. This is awesome. This is wonderful. The older people are weeping. It's like, this is such a disappointment. I mean, I know it's good, but it's not what it used to be. And ah, it's not the same. And not only that, once they got the temple done, the glory of the Lord never actually returned to the temple um, like it had in the first temple. And and, and so there's this disappointment, Lord, this isn't what I expected. Where, where are you, Lord? This doesn't seem like all you promised. And one of the most obvious things about God and about God's sovereignty is this. God doesn't work the way we expect. And it's easy, therefore, to be disappointed. And it's easy to wonder where God is at and what God is up to. And that's what's happening here in this initial fulfillment. They've returned from captivity. The captivity, in some sense, is over, right? Like, they've returned home, and yet they're still under the Persian control and Persian rule, and the Persians are still their overlords. 
They're rebuilding Jerusalem, but it's kind of lame compared to what it used to be. They're rebuilding the temple, and it's not the same, and God's glory never returned to it. And so, man, they're weeping, and it's disappointment. And it's this wondering, where are you, God? Well, the Jews settle down in the land. They rebuild their homes. They finish the temple. And, and, and now, here they are, back into the whole hum of life, and they struggle to be faithful to God. And so in the mid-400s, right, so uh, maybe 440-ish, 450-ish, the mid-400s, Ezra came in and led some religious reform, trying to help the people be faithful to God. So he leads religious reform. Um, and there still was some problems with the city. They hadn't shored up the walls of the, uh, the, temp- or the city, city walls around Jerusalem. The temple still needed some help. And so, again, in the mid-400s, Nehemiah comes, uh, comes in, and Nehemiah had prayed and fasted. He wanted to return from Persia to Jerusalem to uh, rebuild the city, and, and yet he's got a, a kind of an important role in the royal court in Persia. And so he's praying and fasting for this opportunity, and God finally gives him an opportunity. And so he returns, and he helps build the city walls and shores up the temple a little bit. And the Old Testament comes to a close around 400 BC without a shoot from David's line on the throne, right? No king on that promise of a shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to spring up. And and yet here we are, the Old Testament comes to a close, no king on the throne from David's line. Um, The glory of God has not uh, filled the temple. And, And 400 years of prophetic silence, silence from God, unfulfilled promises, constant social upheaval. Where are you, Lord? Wait a second. I thought that this isn't like we expected. Where are you, God? Where are you? This is taking so much longer than we expected it to take. Well, the Persians ruled until the mid-300s, and in about 336, Alexander the Great rises to power, and he swept through the region. He pushed the Persians back and defeated the Persian army. And so we've moved from the Babylonians to the Persians, and now the Greeks, and Israel is still under foreign rule and foreign oppression and foreign armies marching to and fro. And with the Greeks, wherever they went, they spread Greek culture on the land and the Greek language on the the land. And so Alexander, this great empire stretched from Greece to India and Greek culture became the order of the day. But then Alexander died rather suddenly in 323 BC and his empire was split up between his generals. And things actually got worse for the Jews. Israel was caught in the crossfire of all these, the division of Alexander's empire. And you had the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south. And you had the Seleucids in Syria and the north. And everybody vying for control of the little strip of land that was Israel. And so Israel is kicked back and forth like a soccer ball between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies back and forth, back and forth, and armies all over the land. And ah, it's a real tumultuous time until finally the Seleucids gain control. And eventually a ruler who goes by the title Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. So Antiochus comes on the scene, this Seleucid ruler, and he claims to be God manifest, like I am the living manifestation of God himself. And what a desecration to the Jewish faith, right? 
Well, Antiochus wants to control Israel so bad, he figures the way to do that is just to completely squash Jewish culture and Jewish religion. So Antiochus desecrates the temple, the rebuilt temple. He desecrates it on December 25th, 167 BC, and he establishes the worship of himself there in the temple rather than the worship of Yahweh. Not only that, uh, Antiochus outlawed circumcision on the penalty of death. Uh, Well, guess what? Many of the Jews decided following God and being faithful to him was more important than their own life. And so they circumcised their baby boys nonetheless, and Antiochus killed moms and and hung babies around their necks, and he killed whole families that practiced circumcisions. And and in the midst of all of this, right, like, God, like, where are you? At this point, it's it's now been 400 years uh, um, since we, we were allowed to return home to our land, and since supposedly the the promise was going to be fulfilled, and it's definitely not being fulfilled. We're still under foreign rule. There's desecration of your temple. We're not being allowed to circumcise our babies. There is persecution and hostility. Um, and so revolt became a viable option for the Jews, and the Maccabees led it. And you can read about that in that intertestamental work of First and Second Maccabees, and they lead that, that revolt. And Uh, And over the next hundred years, you have kind of Maccabean revolt. And then eventually there's actually tension between the Maccabean rulers and who's going to be the ruler of the day. And And then all of a sudden the Romans now are rising to power as the new power in the region. And in 63 BC, the Romans arrive in Israel uh, and the Roman general Pompey, he, he committed the ultimate sacrilege. He actually not just desecrated the temple. He went right into the Holy of Holies, looked around, and was like, well, that was lame, and that was useless. There's nothing even in there. It's an empty room in the Holy of Holies. But for the Jews, it was like, wait, what? How could God let that happen? God, where are you? Are you really here? Don't you see? How can you let this arrogant Roman general defy the very Holy of Holies and then escape unscathed? God, where are you in the midst of all this? And The Romans ruled with firm military might, and they destroyed any and all who dared to threaten their control. And they carried out their rule through kings that they appointed. And it's like, God, what what about your promise to have a ruler from the line of David on his throne forever? That promise is now almost a thousand years past. And what about the promise that you gave to Micah to raise up a ruler from David's line that would come from Bethlehem? And that was like 700 years ago. And here we are, God. And it's like, God, where are you? Uh, in the year 40 BC, the Romans appointed a man named Herod to be the king of the Jews. We know him as Herod the Great. Um, appointed by the, the Romans. And he had just a wee bit of Jewish blood flowing through his veins. And he ruled with great power all the way up until about 4 BC. And so for 35, 36 years, Herod ruled the area and he built fortresses and he built aqueducts and he built cities and he built palaces. And not only that, he built temples, temples in honor of the Roman emperors. And in an effort to endear himself to the Jews, he he expanded the the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and built it bigger and better than it ever had been before. And he was going to build a bigger and better temple. And 
this was his attempt to try to endear himself to the Jews, but the faithful Jews knew better. They knew he wasn't the real king. They knew God's promise, and they longed for God to act. And there's this angst and this waiting and this wondering and this praying, where are you, God? Way back, 500 years earlier, when all of this began, right? There's Jeremiah weeping in lamentation over Jerusalem that is now a rubble heap. Um, He mourned uh, what seemed God's abandonment 500 years earlier. And here we are, 500 years later. And it's like, well, yeah, we're back in the land. The temple is being rebuilt by a king that also builds temples in honor of Roman emperors. And the pagans are in the midst of our land and their, their icons and their uh, rule and their images are all over the place. And God, where are you? But here's the thing. As Jeremiah sits there lamenting the rubble heap that is Jerusalem, watching it smolder in ashes, Jeremiah also confessed his confidence in God. And I can imagine some of those faithful Jews in 40 BC, uh, under the oppressive rule of the Romans and under the, the strange, perplexing, weird rule of Herod the Great, wondering where God was and why he had abandoned them, clinging to Jeremiah's words and Jeremiah's song of hope. Because in the very book of Lamentations, Jeremiah also confessed his hope in God. And this is what Jeremiah wrote. Lamentations chapter 3 says this, I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great steadfast love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And like I said, I can imagine a faithful Jew sitting there in 10 BC, wondering where in the world God is at. Looking around and realizing, God, there has got to be more to your promises than what we're experiencing. Where are you, Lord? And I can imagine him opening the scroll of Lamentations and reading these words and being deeply built up and encouraged in hope because it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We may not always understand God's ways. We may not always understand God's slowness or even his silence. Imagine that, 400 years with no prophetic word from God um, and and wondering, God, where are you in all of this? We may not understand his silence. Sometimes it seems like God even goes into hiding. But guess what? That's all recorded in the story too. And so we know it's part of the life of faith. And in those moments... May we cling to these great words of determined waiting for God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies and compassion never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so God's faithful people then and God's faithful people today often 
find themselves waiting, waiting, waiting on God. And so as you wait for Christmas this year, again, I encourage you to sit within the story. Maybe open your Bible to Lamentations and read the angst of Jeremiah and read these great words of determined waiting from Lamentations 3 and let your heart be stored. I don't know where you're at and we don't know all that God is doing in our world, even in the present time, but may we wait in hope for the Lord for he is good. He is good to his people and God has always fulfilled his promises when he thinks he should, not when we think we should. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I am so glad you are joining me here. And a special thanks to those of you who make this ministry possible by your prayers and your generous support. If you want to join the team, you can do so at World Family Mission. I'll put a link to that down in the notes below. God bless you guys. I look forward to talking to you again next week.